Welcome back to the Homes at Home podcast, the only Great Lakes podcast doing everything I can, holding on to what I am, pretending I'm a Superman. It's Sunday, May 17th, and I sit down with Nathan Digman to discuss his coaching philosophies and how his past experience in the sport helped shape his future. We also answer a mountain of mailbag questions and find out which podcast Diggy listens to at three times speed. Listen on. Welcome back to the Homes at Home podcast. I am your host, Matt Dwyer, the Great Lakes Regional Coordinator, and I am joined today from Boom Train, Nathan Digman. Diggy, hello. Hello, happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for uh, joining me this week. Um, it's my pleasure. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. I uh, I just won a game in my Madden Online franchise, so uh, life is good right now. That what what team do you play in Madden? I uh, it's a fantasy draft with friends, so I oh, have okay. a random team. All right, it shows that I do not play Madden. <laughs> well, no, you can do it with whatever team you want, but. Yeah, I just I'm a Cowboys fan, and I drafted random people, and that we're like multiple years in the future. So now I've got all my uh, all my futuristic players balling out for me. That's pretty. It's cool. a good. You know what? It's a good start to our theme of of coaching and team building because that's what I do <laughs> with Madden. <laughs> Man, one track mind. He the focus, the absolute focus. Let's let's start off here talking about your Quidditch journey. How did you get involved? How did you get started with Quidditch? I played sports my whole life. Um, I've had, like, this is like my second break in not actively playing a sport since uh, first grade because I played sports year-round since, like, all the way through. And I got, so, like, going through high school, like, four sports, Uh, like in Iowa baseball's in the summer so there's literally no breaks they all overlap with each other and I got to college and I was like well I want to do a sport um I don't know what I want to do I'd kind of done all of the kind of mainstream stuff already it was football basketball track baseball um and had kind of gone all in on all of those and um had like baseball I, I tried out for club baseball and I had the thing where like, I, I don't know if I ever got fixed, but there's something wrong with my hand where I can't swing anymore. Um, there, I think club basketball I tried out for and the guys were just really, uh, toxic and I wasn't vibing. And then I probably a couple weeks into the school year, I hadn't gone to the Quidditch tryouts, but they were outside my dorm, O'Donnell Hall, uh, good old OD. It, they had a practice in like this little green space and me and a couple guys who no longer play Quidditch. They only played one year, but we all like hopped out there and I like hopped out in my tennis shoes that had like holes in them and I played and it was fun. And uh, that was the beginning. If I keep going this long, this is going to be a really long podcast. That's what editing is for. You know? <laughs> I, hope you I don't cut out the craft. No, uh, so I played at Marquette for all four years. Let's see here. Probably my later in my freshman year, I started kind of on like a coaching captaining track where just like I, there was things that we were trying to do in practice where, um, the captain at the time was like, this is what Minnesota was doing against us. And I was like, I watched the film earlier this afternoon. No, that's not, uh, let's do this differently against them. And so, that kind of happened, and 
after my freshman year, I decided I was no longer going to play Quidditch. Um, I was done. Uh, there was kind of some things I didn't get along with the team that well. It just wasn't a ton of fun for me. And Matthew Fiebig, who I'm sure you know, um, essentially in like August said, hey, you're going to be on the e-board. I've talked to him since. It was a very strategic move. He just wanted me to play and thought that I would uh, feel a sense of duty to continue playing if I was on the e-board. So did that. And then I was a captain sophomore in junior year, second half of junior year, I started coaching. I don't know. We probably had okay success at Marquette. I probably consider myself a pretty awful captain and coach back then. Um, wasn't, I don't know. It's really hard because you don't know a ton back then. Uh, and then transitioned eventually after my, I think it was after my senior year. It was the first summer I coached intensity. Oh, this is a long journey. Um, coached intensity. We lost in the semi or lost in the finals then played for TCQC the next year, then started Boom Train the following year, and then coached Intensity last year, and I'm coaching Intensity again this year, and we're still doing the Boom Train thing. So that was my Quidditch journey in a very weird roundabout way, but I don't know. Is, is that a satisfactory answer, answer for you? Wow, what good radio asking the host if it's a satisfactory answer. Uh, yes, it is a satisfactory answer. It gives a lot of information. Uh, I didn't know that you were getting, like, you didn't want to play anymore. That, like, that's a, that was a bold strategy by Feebig to put you on the e-board to get you to stay. Yeah, uh, there's always a, a long-term plan. So he, we've been doing stuff like that for a long time. You have long-term plan, and he, he did that, and then, I don't know, put me in a leadership role, trusted my opinion, and I don't know. I, I think he just sensed that the reason I didn't want to keep doing it is because people didn't care about it like a sport like I did, and I was just like, this is dumb, because I was like trying to teach people stuff in practice, and they were not as about it as I would have liked. Like, people weren't as receptive. I think people were there for fun. I mean, you were there in, like, the early days of Quidditch. It was a lot more whimsical, and, like, it wasn't sport-minded. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why I've just kind of had more and more fun with Quidditch as it as it's kind of developed as a sport and as I've been able to get in more competitive roles because I think that's probably what I get the most out of is just the, the competition and sport aspect. Yeah, and I can totally see that with just how you are on the field and everything and all of the leadership that you've held and, and everything that I've heard in the past several weeks while doing this podcast. I am a nice guy, though, too, just to be clear. I have a sense of humor. I heard something about my sense of humor or lack thereof on a... I think that was Jeanette's or something. She was trying to say I was goofy. I'm, I am goofy. You just haven't seen that side yet, Matt. I guess not. I definitely have spent a lot less time with you than some of our other guests who have played on teams with you or managed next to you or what have you. Yeah, you don't want to know that side of me. <laughs> All right, that's Things ominous. get freaky, man. <laughs> yeah, okay. I have so many questions, but also I don't want to ask them. My vibe is very much, you just don't know how to respond. How's that working out for you? I, I don't know yet. You tell me. Do you feel like okay. you know what to say back? <laughs> I do, but I've been doing this for a couple episodes, so okay. I can I can deal with people not answering things a lot better now, I think, or okay, like good. giving weird answers. Just got to keep you on your toes. So you've spoken a lot about coaching so far, and if listeners will remember, if you go back and listen to episode three with Jeanette High, she sung the high praises of you, haha, pun intended, of your coaching. 
And she said specifically that she learned more in one year on Boom Train than she did for four years at Grand Valley. And she attributed a lot of her improvement to your coaching. So I guess I'd like to start off, what is your coaching philosophy? How, how do you approach this? First of all, I want to say, well, this is for Jeanette and probably a lot of people. I think I get more credit than I deserve. Um, we have had the luxury of having so many great people and like, for example, with Jeanette's situation and so many others who've kind of joined the, the, the system lately, uh, it's all about culture and, you know, that learning happens from a culture and that's not something that, you know, maybe I play a role in it, but the only role that I probably play is in kind of the, the who, who's a part of it. Um, beyond that, I mean, this kind of gets at the whole philosophy is beyond that, once you have the right people, um, people with a growth mindset, people who are, you know, they have a sense of their why, why do they play? Why do they want to get better? Why do they want to achieve success in Quidditch? And they all come together when everyone's got the same motivations and the same drive. And it's a culture of positivity and of learning and kind of that growth mindset and also a culture of vulnerability, then growth just happens naturally because everybody is striving to get better. So, you know, I'll, I'll use Boomtrain as an example, just because that's what we're using in this context, talking about Jeanette. <laughs> There's a lot of experience there. I am not the only person with good ideas. Um, there's, a, If you remember when Boomtrain first started, the concept of it was just kind of like everybody's a coach that was portrayed poorly, but it's kind of an idea of we've got all these people with different, you know, everybody on that team seems to have coached a college team at some point or um, had some sort of leadership experience. So it's just all these people have all this drive and knowledge. How do we leverage all of it into a culture of just like collaboration and growth and, and everybody wanting to be the best. And as a result of that, you know, all of it just, it just kind of happens naturally because people care, they want to learn, they want to grow. And of course you're going to, it's like a, Allie would love this. Uh, it's like in a classroom, Allie and I are becoming friends recently because I, uh, her and I see things similarly when it comes to classrooms versus Quidditch coaching. Um, but it's like a classroom where a, a student's only going to learn in the right environment. And, you know, it's just making sure that they're engaged, right? If they're engaged and they want to learn and the environment's right, it's just, it's just going to happen better than it, if, if it's a different situation than that. That's my answer, I guess. Is that satisfactory, Matt? <laughs> All right, I see we're going to continue this bit. Yes, it is satisfactory. Uh, I that's that's interesting. That's I guess that's not what I expected you would say, but that's very interesting and I will definitely agree with you that culture is a huge part of a team and that certainly at least personally that colors how I think of a team and how I approach a team and if you don't have good culture, then you're not going to get what you want out of it. It, rather, if you don't have a culture that fits you. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you feel your time at Marquette influenced that outlook on having a, an appropriate team culture? I learned what not to do. Um, I think that's one of the just hardest parts of Quidditch is you're thrown into like leadership roles and 95% of college players are just like, it's... It, 
coaching your peers when you're a junior in college or a sophomore and you've got seniors who've been on the team longer and like the dynamic of it, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I think anybody who's done it, you did it too, right? I did. Yeah. I was, I was coached for most of my years in Miami. And no matter what, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Like it's trial and error. And there's so many things that you just can't really control. Um, so I mentioned before kind of with culture, probably the only thing that I can control is who kind of comes in the door, who's going to like make the team for boom train, who's going to make the team for intensity. And when you're leading a college program or just even a part of a college program, you don't have that luxury. You kind of take what you can get in terms of recruitment and you teach them how to play Quidditch. You know, you can't just like pick and choose the people who are going to, you know, vibe the best the people who are most most uh, growth oriented, the people who want to be the best players and, and win a championship. So you have to do things so much differently. So I, I kind of learned a lot of good lessons with you have to be a, as a coach in alignment with what your team wants. Like my current, the way I do things would not work at all in a college program at all. Like it, no, and I kind of tried to do it at Marquette at times. And we, my senior year, we had, I believe over 50 people register and play in a USQ game. Wow. At nationals, we did not have 21 because we just churned through players because it was not what they were looking for. So like people might be surprised to hear about that, but like, yeah, that's exactly how not to do it in a college program. If we would have done things differently, Marquette would probably be in a lot better place right now, but we just kind of churned through talent because we were trying to win. And that's not what everybody wanted. And then the people who realized, oh yeah, I'm not as competitive as this. I wanted something more fun. They all just like moved on to something different. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. It's just like, I don't know, you, you, you really have to be in alignment with what the people want. You can't just like do things your way. You've got to do it their way. Right, Exactly. The reason I ask is because, as most listeners will know, Marquette has a bit of a checkered past, and many people have poor feelings towards leadership of old and the way that the team was, and I'm not here to call anyone out or say that anything particular was right or wrong, and obviously there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that an outsider can't see, but I think it's pretty apparent to people that Marquette has had some issues in the past and including while you were playing for the team. And Mm -hmm. I figured that in some way that probably influenced how you moved out of college and moved forward coaching at boom train. That's interesting. Um, I'm not sure which part of the checkered pass you're referring to. I know the season before I got to Marquette, they had an awful reputation as just like, going out on the field and trying to murder everyone. That was the year they won Midwest (laughs) Regionals. I was not on the team that year, if you're talking about that one. Um, The stuff that I might be more, the stuff that I was involved in more so, was likely the decisions not to go to Nationals my freshman and sophomore year. That was something that took a lot of heat. Is that what you're referring to? Or I guess I'm not entirely uh, sure. Yeah, there's there's things like that, but I know people have kind of had a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to Marquette, and I think it, it's certainly gotten better over time, and also, like, my team was kind of far from Marquette, so we didn't see or play you guys all that often. Hmm. I guess, yeah, it's kind of a combination of those things. 
you're right in that in that early season that was my sophomore year of college I think when the team won regionals they had a very bad reputation and I think that even even though the team might have been doing better like personality wise after that I think that was kind of a stain for a little while yeah I would agree it's something I'm I wouldn't be surprised. Have you talked to Katie Quasarano about that? We've talked about this a lot. I know it's something that we were fighting against. So Katie was a year younger than me at Marquette. And we talked about it a lot back then as how do we like actually have like a positive reputation at all? Um, because I really think a lot of it was rooted in that, that season. And I don't know how just or not it was. Uh, I, wasn't there. I've heard plenty of stories. Um, it's funny because I heard a lot of the beef was with Ball State, and now I'm, like, so integrated with Ball State, I'm pretty sure I could name almost, like, everyone who played in the tournament for them this year um, just because I'm so close to their program. But, yeah, I I think... So, for context, the year after that, they only had... where we My freshman year, we had 17 new players out of 21. And so there was only four left. And... I guess I don't know how much of that was left. I think we we're at, at that point we were just seventeen new people who had no idea what we were doing, and then we got a bad reputation because the year before us they were trying to hurt people, and then we just didn't know the rules, so <laughs> we probably got a reputation for that too. I don't know. I, I I don't know how to how to respond to that one just because I don't know. I feel like some of it probably wasn't justified, uh, but it for for like the heat that we got after that, but I don't know. I don't know if uh, that's something that uh, people still think or, or still thought. That's a new one, Matt. I have not heard that recently in a long time. I, I think it's definitely healed up, I'll say, uh, over the past few years. I think the reputation has gotten better as players cycle out and players cycle out of other teams as well. I think it's easy for people who played a few years back to remember those times when Marquette wasn't so great. Uh, and I and I think constant decisions like the few years that you guys did not go to nationals probably helped color that a little bit that oh this team is you know we don't know what's going on with them they're up they're down you know it's it's probably diff- it was probably difficult to put a bead on what was Marquette Quidditch and what did they stand for that's actually a really good point now that I think about it just from like a storyline standpoint there was the year in which so it was uh, the year in which they won regionals and then they. Uh, whatever happened everyone hated them you know everyone was happy they lost at nationals uh and then the next season we had totally new players but we didn't go to nationals until my senior year so we had three consecutive years there where like the national scene didn't see us and so for the people who like hadn't seen us they just assumed it was like the same group right because you haven't like seen anything different to change your opinion of us and to provide some color on like why we didn't go to nationals my freshman year um we did not i was not a part of leadership so i take no ownership of this but we did not realize that stay and play was a thing and uh had cheap hotels and then we realized we had to pay double for stay and play and we couldn't afford the trip anymore so that's why we backed out last minute my sophomore year that was definitely my decision with not mine alone it was a lot of me and feebig we got uh, absolutely destroyed by Blue Mountain, and it kind of just ruined the team. And we didn't feel like we could go to nationals anymore after that. So that was that. 
was can may I ask is that like like you were physically destroyed your spirits were destroyed we lost 180 to nothing in a game in which frankly we thought we had more talent and we realized from a strategic standpoint we have no chance against anybody and we'd rather not spend the money you know we're just going to go and, and lose every game so why would we go to nationals when we could just you know essentially what we did is we played closer tournaments got the young people experience and I watched a lot of film to figure out what was going on. I start that's kind of that was actually a big thing. That was like my greatest moment of defeat um, in Quidditch, where I was just like, "We're not good," and I don't know why. Um, and went back and yeah, I watched film like all summer until we came back the next year. Is and then the following season was a good time. That was my junior year. Uh, we went into regionals undefeated. We beat Mizzou, I believe, by 120 Quaffa points two weeks before regionals and then lost to him twice to not get a bid in the blizzard. So, yeah, it was a good time. I like to not think about my Marquette Quidditch time that much because it's a lot of painful experiences. That's fair. That's fair. We can move on from this, but it's good to have some backstory here. I definitely have some arguments against why you should have gone to nationals even though you would have lost all your games but we can yeah. save that for another time i might well i might see it differently now but at the time i mean it was thousands of dollars and we weren't gonna i don't know we don't need to debate it right now i think it's a it's an interesting topic to be discussed though certainly absolutely so after graduating from marquette you went to play for tcqc for a season Yep, actually only uh, one tournament. It was a good time. Uh, I decided after I graduated and Indian Intensity did not win the championship, I decided I was going to retire. I was like, done. wasn't going to play club. Brew City was starting at the time. Um, as a result of the way kind of I failed to coach at Marquette, I did not have relationships with the people on that team that would be positive. I, and like our goal, again, like the, everybody on the same page in terms of what you want to do, like, that's just like, not what they were trying to do is in terms of uh, competitive, like they want to, they still want to win, but they, they're not like on the level of like what I want to do exactly. Um, so I was just like, well, I'll take some time off. And then, I had been messaging Tad, I think, probably started it because he was playing for TCQC then. I don't know if I even was that good of a friend with Tad yet, but he kept selling me on all this potential that they had, and I started talking to Obi and uh, some more people on the team, and eventually I was just like, well, I can I can learn a lot from, from this experience. I'll just jump in, and I was getting the itch. Uh, I played one tournament. I uh, tore my Tommy John ligament in my elbow and fractured it um, in my... No, no, I played two two tournaments. I played at Heroes vs. Villains and then, I, and then that one. But that was my first game at that tournament. I got hurt. And then I, I like helped coach them at Nationals. So that was a, a good good experience. Um, a lot to learn from them. A lot of the ideas that I use now come from what, what they were doing or what they weren't doing and I saw they could be doing um, just as like gaps in strategy. That was a, a really good learning experience. Though also on, on a culture standpoint because they do a lot of things right. Um like I, I could name drop everybody over there that uh, does a great job, like building a good culture. You think about TCQC, they've been here for like, what, seven years and they have like the same squad. So in terms of retention, that's obviously a, a something that they do, th- they do correctly. 
Yeah, you know, now that you're mentioning it, I, I remember, like, playing them in their first season, like, I was, like, a junior in college or something like that, and they came to regionals, it's like, wow, they really have been around for six or seven years, it's pretty impressive for a club team in this area. Yep, and it's it's the same core for the most part. Yeah, and they, they still make us look silly every time, like, I feel like I know some of the tricks, like, playing Monarchs, playing against the Monarchs on Rift this past summer, I'm like... I know Max Myers fast. Still couldn't catch him. Like, still couldn't do a single thing about it. I'll, I'll stop from uh, just spitting the scouting report on on a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk after this. You can you can give us the the DL on how to how to break the monarchs. So you spent part of a season coaching and playing for TCQC, and then you move on to Boom Train. And so Boom Train has existed for two seasons. It was kind of like other people in the Illinois Midwest area coming together, a few others from the Great Lakes in the aftermath of Lake Erie Elite. Aftermath slash demise of. Uh, I don't fault any of those players, by the way, in case anyone, like, I don't know. I don't think anyone thinks that. But, like, for the people who you wanted to play competitively, you wanted to play with the best players, and it was closer to home than Lake Erie was, like, I totally get that. And I, like, that was the right move for them. Uh, But you mentioned it earlier that, like, you have a lot of people on the team, like, everyone was a leader on their college team. Everyone was a president or a coach or a captain or something. And I feel like that is kind of the perpetual problem in, like, the Great Lakes Midwest area is that the, the only people who are sticking around are the people who did the most. And then you kind of have this like too many cooks type issue going on. Maybe not issue, but like it is a concern that you need to pay attention to that. There's all these people that are used to running the team that are used to being the guy or the girl or the person in general who gets it all done both on and off the field. And so, and we've experienced this with, you know, I think I'm running out of fingers to count Name the your iteration. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people think that they're continuations of one another, but like many, there are many, many different uh, iterations of Great Lakes club teams. I think that contributed to some problems on some teams is just having too many, too many people uh, in those type of roles. So, how did you approach that problem for Boom Train? Year one, we said. We want to hear everybody's thoughts. We wanted to empower everyone. And the idea was at the end of the day, I had a final voice. Um, so whether it's ideas like strategy, like what should we do it doing in practice? It was just kind of like open forum. And I think that that worked well, but I also think it was a colossal failure at the exact same time um, because we didn't capture the potential of what we could have done. And I think that was represented by our result in, uh, I don't know what city it was in Texas, but uh, against Round Cal- Rock. Yeah, Round Rock. Um, it's a big state. There's a lot of cities. Uh, but we, uh, frankly, I was just catastrophically embarrassed by that performance. And as the game was unfolding, so for people who aren't aware, we got shut out by Cav in the semis last year, um, like 13 nothing. And as the game was unfolding, I was just watching how we played and the decisions we were making, the positioning we were in, and frankly, it was a sense of despair. 
not because we were overwhelmed by what they were doing in any way. It was the fact that the things that we could be doing were better and I could have taught them to be better, but I didn't say anything because I wanted everybody to have a voice. And I take ownership for that. Um, if there was like coaching that I could have done, but I didn't, that that's, you know, like my fault. And, and that's kind of the stance that I've taken since, you know, I, I want to be as humble as possible because everybody has good ideas. It just came down to a point where I'd heard all these ideas and whatnot. And like the implementation wasn't there. And that was my fault um, for not not being able to, to do better. Um, and so this year, well, it started with Indy the, this summer, but this year it was kind of a totally different show. And I think it uh, was a totally new experience for everybody uh, who had been on the team last year. I mean, it was like the same vibes and culture, same people, but um, in terms of what we did from a coaching standpoint was different in that it wasn't kind of like you play the way that is best for you and like do your thing. It was more so there is a right way to play and we're going to do it. And I don't give a crap if you have another idea because you're going to do it our way. Because like, frankly, at this point I've done the math and I understand if they're running a two, two, there's this pass that has to go here. There's a pass that has to go here. And it's a 75% chance of a goal as long as they play it this way. And like the numbers are there and everything's justified by numbers. So like, I feel like the credibility is backed in numbers. So I think that resonated with people because despite all of these people being, uh, you know, leaders in their own right, it was athletes with a growth mindset who wanted to win. And when we started coaching like a real coach and like, I don't know, demanding more of people, telling them a right way to do things, it was like people were getting what they always wanted. And that started with Indy last summer and I'd say it continued this summer. And I, I, again, I don't think that that was necessarily me. I think that was carried out by a lot of people though, that made it possible from a cultural standpoint. So like it started this summer with, or this past summer with Indy where there was a lot of people, you know, Luke Yeager, Matt Pesh, like Matt Melton, a lot of people who have a great impact on culture. K-Pak, I cannot miss K-Pak. K-Pak's the goat, uh, who like, I might say something and then those leaders like carry it out or they have great ideas and they just carry it out. And it's just, it it works, I guess, because when you're playing a sport, it's just something people have been waiting for more feedback, I guess. And they were waiting for someone to tell them the right way to do it with confidence. And I might be wrong. We might be wrong on half the stuff that we're doing, but the fact that we're decisive and uh, have conviction helps people to believe. And there's a few other things that go into that. Frankly, the numbers, we've done a lot of like statistical analysis to figure out what's the best, like most probable situation or best, like highest probability of scoring, how to decrease their probability of scoring, et cetera. But like, I don't know. There's just a lot that goes into it. I think it's, I've rambled plenty at this point, but it, it comes down to just like actually coaching people instead of like being a like captain and for people who don't see me, I put captain in parentheses. Cause I think that's what a lot of people do in Quidditch is they just kind of be a leader without actually teaching. I think that's a very interesting point. And I, I like what you've brought up here about 
how you've changed from one season to the next. It's funny that you would speak about it in this way. Like, from the outside, I look at this and see a very talented team that has gone, that in their first year had a very strong run to the Final Four to lose to the eventual champion. I find that incredibly successful. I would love to have that kind of success. But to hear you talk about it, that was falling short of your expectations, and you feel very disappointed. Yeah. Uh, Every time we don't win, it's, um, I don't know, we, we didn't do the right thing, right? We There's things to be improved on, and it's a missed opportunity to, to be successful. When I was in third grade, uh, I was taking a standardized test. Uh, I don't know, I assume you had to take the standardized test when you were little. Um, yeah, everyone, we had um, the Iowas. That's what I- they were called. I- ITBS? No, they were called oh. Iowas. But oh. I like it stood for something, but they were called Iowas. Well, we took the Iowa tests of basic skills and you got put into a percentile. And every year growing up, I got a 99th percentile. And in third grade, I got a 98th percentile and it ruined me. Um, my whole family gave me a hard time about it um, for like literally to this day. I hear about it. Uh, and I feel like that's a, probably a pretty good analogy for how I feel about everything. <laughs> I, I'm almost afraid to ask, give you a hard time, like, hey, remember when you were eight and got down on yourself? Or, hey, remember when you were eight and didn't do as well as before? Uh, well, they'll they'll be like, uh, hey, remember when you were eight and you, uh, like, what is it? They, they, you, like, melted your brain playing video games and didn't, like, take your education seriously? <laughs> Yikes. I but, can, this, this is very telling for... Yeah. Your mindset. Yeah, I'm uh, very much, if uh, if I am not the absolute best, it is a colossal failure. Um, and so it's perpetually working to be the best. Um, that's probably very insightful for a lot of people because I don't talk about that that much. But yeah, when I was in kindergarten, no, first grade, a guy uh, beat me one time in reading rules. Do you know what reading rules are? You like uh, unroll toilet paper and you got to know all the words. Uh, it was the no. first day of school. He, first day of school, he beat me. Um, and I got home after the first day of school and my mom thought I got into a fight or something because I wouldn't talk. Uh, she was just like, Nathan, what the heck is like going on? I wouldn't eat dinner or anything. I just like went in my room and what I was doing is I was studying my reading rolls and I never lost him again. <laughs> Like, we, I, I'm still great friends with him. He visits me in Milwaukee, like, every year. And it's a story we bring up, like, every time because it's hilarious. Because he went home and he was like, I beat him one time. I knew I only had a chance on the first day because after that he had no hope. Wow. This is, I can, like, I can hear every single intensity player and boom train player listening to this right now and stroking their chin and, and scratching their head and going, huh. This explains a lot. I guess so. So you talked about moving into this second year of Boom Train. You were much more forceful in the decisions that you made. Was there any tipping point or something that was like, this is it. This is why we're being like, I have recognized the failure of the past year. I have specifically identified it. And now I am going to change. Or it was some sort of gradual... Uh, experience that you like worked through in order to reach this point of how your philosophy changed going into year two? Mm, I think it was 
something that, I mean, at the end of the day, my number one priority is winning. And I explain that to everybody. They get it. Um, and it, I just kind of come to the conclusion in that Cav game that there's no way we could do it again in that way. Um, and it's not like I'm, I was like super different from the way I am now. I was still kind of demanding, I feel like, um, sometimes too demanding, obviously from the Marquette days. Uh, but I think it's just more like conviction in what we're doing strategically. Um, and it was an understanding, and this is probably a, a good take tidbit that I think probably keys in on a lot of like what we've done well in the past year is we were playing as individuals because there wasn't a voice ringing through all the chatter. And somebody has to be that voice with regards to like, this is what we're all going to do. And people need to all be moving in the same direction. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, I said, I have conviction in like what we're doing strategically because of the numbers, but at the same point, like I could be wrong and there's other stuff that is better, but what matters the most is that we're all actually like beating to the same drum, doing the exact same thing. There's inherent value in all six players on the field at all times, knowing where each other is going to be because there is a set, like this is where you're supposed to be. And not just like, I have a role who's like stand on the wing sometimes. And I make cuts sometimes. No, it's you make a cut when this player moves here. And the fact that like, yeah, it might be the right cut might be the wrong cut. I don't know if I'm right. I feel like I'm right, but I could be wrong. But the fact that like your teammate knows that you're cutting, if I like, you know, if, if you're my teammate and you're going to cut, if I do this, then I can like make a play off of that. And there's actually some organiza- organization to it. And that helps a lot rather than just like the cluster of randomness that is general Quidditch. Yeah. It's a hard sport to strategize for, but I take your point certainly. So I'm going to do something that we did last time with Rachel, where I moved some of the mailbag questions into the editorial type section Uh, We had a lot of people asking about coaching, I think specifically because they know your your gravitas uh, as a coach, I guess. (laughs) He's rolling his eyes, listeners. I cannot, I, I am trying to like take as little responsibility for it as possible because I am just kind of like the person who's carrying out the mission of the masses in some ways, like... Everybody wants the same thing. Somebody just needs to be that voice, I think. That's really all I'm doing is, like, saying, here's what we need to do. Like, there's conversations behind the scenes. We had, like, a three-hour film slash stats call last night for Intensity. And, like, everybody's got ideas and stuff. So just, like, somebody needs to be the voice for it, right? Like, that's all I'm doing. Everybody else is, like, building the culture. And, frankly, it's everybody who's got, like, the, like, amazing personalities and willingness to learn and willingness to be vulnerable and teach each other that I can't, I can't accept any like gravitas. I hate that word, man. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We can move into some of the questions that the listeners have left us. Starting with uh, Jeff, what things have you learned to improve your own leadership styles? Um, Listen before you speak. Um, We, kind of the general vibe of every conversation I'm a part of is like coaching conversation. Everybody else speaks in, in right now in the zoom call, everybody else speaks. And then I speak, um, because I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in letting others have their voice and, uh, feel empowered. Um, it improves engagement 
and from a working with player standpoint, I think that is something like we do this thing very frequently, pretty much every practice where um, I'm not going to describe it in too much detail, not to give away all our awesome secrets, but uh, there's a particular thing that we do where we play and then it allows for a lot of discussion. And really all I'm doing is playing moderator. It's what did you see? What it like, what Rachel said the same thing on hers. Like it's, they do it a different way, but it's, you know, what, what did you see on that play? What did you like? What didn't you like? What, how did you feel uncomfortable? What was, um, you know, what did you like that you saw from your teammates? What didn't you like that you saw from your teammates and just letting people speak and and absorbing. I think too often people rush to say, all right, here's what you did wrong. This is what you got to fix. And there is some value in that and having like a, a, a concrete answer. And that's like kind of the judgment that I'm playing at the end, but I want to hear what everybody has to say first. And then it's just like, by that point, we all have kind of the same idea of what the solution is anyway, because we've kind of talked it out. That's probably the thing I've learned the most is just listening though. I think that's a very important skill to have, not only in coaching, but in life. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Is that, is that some like, I don't know. Is that something like your grandfather would say or something like that? No, that's like a thing that people say. I don't know. I, 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 I guess. Okay. It's like an idiom. I grew up on that one. Sure. Okay. Danny Akub would like to ask, when coaching, sometimes you come across players that are difficult to coach. How do you get to those individuals to make them want to learn? What doesn't work in these cases? Luckily, I've had a... Since... Since I've gotten to a point where I am in a position to only choose the people who want to learn, that has been a non-issue for the most part. And I think the players who are difficult to coach, the number one person who's been difficult to coach is Danny Yakub. I just want to... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Though on his first practice for Indy last summer... We were like, Danny's got potential. And then he just like threw the ball and we were like, oh my God, that was awful. (laughs) I I stopped practicing. I was like, Danny, you got to throw the ball better than that, man. Oh, it was a good time. But anyway, what, what doesn't work with, with that people are difficult to coach if they don't feel like you care, you can get through to anybody if they know that you're in their best interest or you have their best interest in mind. So like people will listen to you. People will care what you have to say after you've developed some sort of personal connection with them. So, you know, it, it's a lot easier if I'm being coached, it's a lot easier for me to listen to somebody after I know that like that critique isn't coming from a a place of anything other than frankly, love, love of like winning love of, you know, doing it the right way, love of that person and wanting to see them be their best and wanting the team to be its best. And as a result of like that transparent of like, if you're transparent about what your why is and uh, as a coach and, and like you connect with people on that level of like, this is what I want. This is why I'm telling you the things that I'm going to tell you. Nobody's difficult to coach because they, they get it. They want that too. Our next question comes from Kieran Collier. Collier, I'm sorry, Kieran. What's one thing Quidditch coaches should be doing that they aren't already doing? That's a great question. Um, I think the vast majority of 
Quidditch coaches are not providing their players with direct, meaningful feedback in the moment, in practice, often enough. Like, oh, you did this stopping practice saying, all right, you made this movement. It could have been differently in this way. Or actually, frankly, what I would do is say, I'm going to call out Scott because I know there's going to be a question on shooting and I'm going to answer it right here for the sake of time. It's Scott, why did you shoot the ball right there? He say, well, because I was open. And I would say, you were open, but, and we would talk through the situation, right? And that's just like stopping mid scrimmage to, to talk through the situation and then talking at a volume we're both talking at a volume in which everyone in the, in the situation can overhear the conversation and also partake in it if they have a different take on it. But just like you made this decision, I don't agree with it. What, what could have been done differently here? Because next time he's in that situation, like that spot on the field, I want to rip it. No, 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 no. He does have a question coming up later. Uh, I know about does. shooters having to shoot. <laughs> I know he does. <laughs> he's, he's got a shooter mindset. Uh, Aaron Moreno would like to know what tips do you have for someone who is new to coaching? Lead with empathy and show your heart. Um, that goes back to um, the com- like listening. Um, it goes back to like sharing your why and knowing, making sure people know that you care. Yeah, I, th- I think like if you're new to coaching, it's an impossible thing. Like nobody has experience coaching. Like it's not like people were coaching their. You know, there's no experience like coaching your peers and in a sport in which none of us really have that much conviction with regards to, like, what's the best way to do things. Um, So, like, building credibility is incredibly difficult. The only way you can get past all of that is just, like, being a caring person, being a loving person, being somebody that, like, people can connect with. And by you leading with your, like, heart and your empathy, they'll understand that as well. I feel like, you know, if you say, you know, I'm not entirely sure what the best move is here, but I'm not sure we did it right. Let's talk about it. You know, you don't necessarily have to be the person who has all the answers. I think that's a misconception about all coaches is like, you have to be the person that has all the answers. You just have to be the person to like facilitate discussion in a, in a caring way and like foster a a culture that, that works with it. Aaron would also like to know what are the most important differences when coaching a college team versus a club or MLQ team? I think I hit on that a little bit with my uh, experiences in the past. I think uh, college, you have to tailor what you're doing to the people that you're coaching. Some people have different goals. You need to like, I tried to do it when I was in college. I did a poor job asking the questions apparently. Um, Just like ask people like what, what do you want from this season? Do you want to be competitive? Do you, and like, what does actually being competitive mean to you? Like how much effort are you willing to put into this? How much like social stuff do you want to have? You're really just like facilitating what those people want. And if you try and go in a different direction than what they want, it's not going to work out well. Um, if you're in the club setting, it's the same thing usually in my, well, I guess I'm in a very unique club setting where we're like hyper competitive. So I'll take that back. It's really any team. I think you should do that, um, is understand what people want. Um, MLQ is probably different in that. I don't know. I I think MLQ is designed with like competition in mind, but even still like it wouldn't work unless if you're like leading in a way that others are in agreement with, with like the way you see things, the way you want to take things the path you want to pave forward. (laughs) 
Certainly, yeah. And definitely MOQ is structured with competition in mind. Like, that's their whole that's their whole thing. Yeah. So I definitely feel it there. And it's like coaching a club team, I feel, in a way. There's, there's similar things that you need to uh, consider. Yeah. I mean, if I was... I, the, I said it before, but like the way I coach only works for the team that I'm coaching at that moment. And then frankly, if we have different personalities, I'd probably coach it totally differently. It's just, I don't know, facilitating conversation in a way I, which we feel it's most meaningful. It's really all I do. <laughs> all right, Nathan, you've certainly given us a lot to think about coaching wise. And I hope this is helpful for those of you asking questions out there and, and those of you coming to coach teams this next coming season. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we answer more of your mailbag questions. And we are back, Matt, Nathan, and now it's time to answer a few more of your mailbag questions. Our question from Jeanette High. What do you think is the best way to start fostering recognition and growth in smaller regions, specifically the Great Lakes and the Midwest? Many of our best players that could be top players in the nation go unrecognized by most of the larger quid journalism. How can we get those players the recognition they deserve? I think that that is an accurate statement. I'm not going to say specifically what it is, but the mantra, uh, like the team motto for Boom Train is specifically like directly related with the fact that most people like midwest people think that boom train players are good but i specifically overheard somebody in new orleans this year say how did they win with that roster so it's like people don't think we're any good they've like never heard of anybody on our team it's very interesting as we like see it play out um and not that like we have like the greatest players ever but i mean i feel like we have some good players at least um how do we I'm going to start with the second part for sure. Wait a minute. You know, how do we get them to be more recognized? Well, think about who are the people who are writing stuff for like the eighth man. I'm going to say the eighth man as like the number one thing, because I feel like that's what is the most prevalent. Right. But yeah, anyway, the, with the eighth man, um, who's the stuff commenting on stuff or who are the people who are commenting on stuff? And who are the people who are like the commentators or the journalists or uh, uh, correspond? I don't know what word they use, but the only person contributing from the Midwest is Tad. I don't know if there's anybody else from Midwest or Great Lakes contributing. Am I, am I wrong in that statement? I don't, I don't know the entire editorial staff, but I can't think of it. Like no one comes to mind as to who like is a contributing writer or analyst for them. Well, if you're in the Midwest or Great Lakes and we're forgetting you, we are sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that gets to the root of it. I recently, so I do this thing where I ask people for feedback. Um, I am just constantly looking for feedback on how to be better, uh, improve as a coach, improve as a player, et cetera. And I asked um, someone, I'm not going to name them just because I feel like that's inappropriate. But I said, you know, what do you think of of me as a player? Um, It's somebody who is an eighth man correspondent. Um, and they said, I can't give any opinions because I've never really seen you play that much. And I think that gets to the heart of it, right? Uh, people aren't watching Midwest Quidditch at the same level as they're watching. I'm saying Midwest, but I mean, greater Midwest 2012 Midwest, uh, (laughs) great lakes Quidditch. Uh, they, they don't watch, uh, 
they're, they're not watching us. They're not, you know, who's watching uh, Ball State Michigan final last year? I don't know how many people were watching it. Maybe some, but then how many people know who the, you know, second best beater is on Michigan, on Michigan? You know, there's a lot of people who just totally fly under the radar where that's not going to be the case in the Northeast. There's everybody knows everybody because of MQC and, and, and all the hype that those players get. And that's not undue. I think that there's just more that we could do and, I'm certainly not volunteering myself, and it's kind of hypocritical, but I think that there's just more that people in the community could do to bring hype to the region to make those players feel recognized. It's kind of of our own doing in some ways that we don't have as many people out there hyping hyping our people um, on kind of a, a national level. And I, I think some of it comes from winning, Um there hasn't been as much, you know, top line success as of the the last few years. But even still, how many people can name uh, six players from Kansas's Final Four team? How many people can name six players from Mizzou's Final Four team? I think we just need more more representation in that regard. And I think podcasts and articles and stuff like that that people are listening to, people are are seeing, is a great step. I think there's a lot of work happening with conferences in which we're going to try and do some of the stuff that they're doing out there. Uh, I don't know exactly how that's going to going to play out, but just from like conversations I've had in, in the last week, um, I know some things are in the works. And just in general, I think it is the duty and the responsibility of the older people, such as us, we're old people, Matt, uh, to do some of that work for the youngins. Is that a proper term these days? The youngins? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they're, we can say college students. I know the some people students. get up in arms. I honestly, I use the term like we babs sometimes just right. to be funny. And like, I, I'm sure someone somewhere is like, how dare he call me a wee bab. The folks young, younger than us old farts. <laughs> But we could, I, I guess I, I want to say we could do more. Um, I think there's more that can be done with regard to stuff, like hoops, hops, and heels. That was a great thing. Just talking about players, talking about games, stuff that people listen listen to, um, doing more stuff like that. Um, if there's more, I would love to see some random player i almost said kid random player from a great lake school start writing stuff for the eighth man all right go out there maybe the stuff you write sucks i still do it right like it's gonna be better and better every time you do it we just talked about how i sucked as a coach for like how long i'm probably still not that good at it but i do it (laughs) i think i think there's a lot of good that can come from from that type of stuff and i'm sure that there's people who have a, a lot of passion for that but maybe are a little bit less willing to put themselves out there and do it i certainly agree yeah it's it's kind of different than how it used to be where a lot of people were doing different podcasts and blogs and maybe we need to just bring back tumblr maybe that was the problem tumblr went away and then everyone stopped using tumblr and then all the the journalism stopped 
I would love to see... I, I don't know if 8th Man was going to do it again this year, but I would love to see, spe- just for the college people, uh, the, like, the articles where you do a review of each team throughout, uh, like, the lead-up to Nationals. That's really valuable. I remember what was said about me personally my freshman year in, like, an 8th Man article. David Hoops wrote it. I specifically remember it. That stuff matters to people. As much as that's, like, dumb and it's, like, a little playing on your egotistical side, whatever. I've talked to a lot of people. They remember, like, oh, I've been mentioned in, like, three articles. Okay, great. Like, you you notice if that stuff happens and it drives engagement. How great would it be if there was more college players recognized on that level, that scale, where you just hear your name, you see your name. It makes you feel like you're a part of something, right? You're You're... You're not just some random player for Indiana State. Now you're name name a player, right? You, you're a person. You're, you're David Stahl. Sure, yeah. I've I've literally never seen Indiana State play. I okay. Know <laughs> I, I, I didn't. That's mean the it first that Indiana way. State player I can think of. Yeah, I've, I've. They did not have a team when I have the last time I watched a game of college Quidditch in person. They did not have a team. But yeah, I think that gets at the point is just hearing your name means something in terms of your your perceived value within this thing we call the Quidditch community. Karen would like to ask, what is your favorite play to run and or call? We don't have plays. We have sets. Um, you have a specific spot to be on the field based on the situation. It's all reads. You... Similar to a zone read in football where the quarterback is reading the defensive end, and if the defensive end looks like he's going to follow the running back, the quarterback keeps it. If the defensive end stays home, then hands it off to the running back. So the entire thing is based off of particular reads, and you just react to what the defense shows. Based on what the defense does, there's there is a specific spot where every single player is supposed to be between chasers and beaters on the field at all times. So we don't have plays. We just have sets. There's the analytical insight that I'm sure everyone was looking for from Boom Train. Liam Zock would like to know, why do you play Quidditch? Because I started playing it in college and I haven't uh, found a reason to stop. That was the, like not as passionate as you were hoping for, probably. <laughs> no, you can. it could very simply be like, I enjoy tackling nerds. Like, if that was your reasoning, then fine. I, I support that valid reason. My reason for playing is I just like being a part of a competitive team. I like I like kind of the thrill of competitive moments. But, I mean, I could get that out of any sport. I like Quidditch probably particularly because it's a underdeveloped strategically sport. Like, it's a sport that's underdeveloped strategically. I think that there's room to improve. And, obviously, I have, like, this mindset of, like, constant improvement and going to be the best. And there's an opportunity to be the best. I think it's something that... Max Havlin mentioned on the midline once where it was just like, that's how he uses it as a recruiting tactic. And I think it uh, is something that resonates with people is Quidditch is a small enough sport where if you put some time into it, you can make a name for yourself. And I'm probably not there yet, but like that's something that is possible, right? It's something where can build a, a successful team. I haven't reached my definition of success yet, but maybe someday. Here's to hoping. Jeanette High has another question. Best advice for someone recovering from an injury that is trying to get back onto the pitch. How do you maintain confidence on the pitch after a major injury? That's a great question. I think it's something that is 
I think she meant it kind of maybe sarcastically, but also maybe seriously. I know that she had a major injury as well. Um, the first thing is your rehab starts the day you get hurt. So what are you going to do literally from that moment that you were injured to make sure you're minimizing the time uh, with which it takes to recover and also taking care of yourself to a degree uh, with which you your recovery is done right? Doesn't help to be rushing back from an injury. I mean, you're, you're going to end up hurt again. You're going to end up not 100%. That's not the right way to do it. Um, that's certainly not the right way to do it. I've done that before. It's not. Uh, how do you maintain confidence on the pitch after a major injury? So after you are 100% good to go and you feel safe and, and you feel like you can go 100% without a risk of injury, it is a baby steps thing. It's all psychology. So I had elbow surgery in... I've. Fun fact, I played four sports all four years of, of high school, and I got hurt in all 16 seasons. Um, so I had elbow surgery in baseball so- sophomore year. They moved my ulnar nerve, so they take it, took it out of that little crevice between the two bones. They just grabbed it and moved it to the outside. So I had to start throwing a baseball after they like cut open my arm, and it felt totally different because the nerves actually move as a result of that. So it was something where you just throw and it feels weird and then you throw and it hurts a little bit and it feels uncomfortable but you have to kind of ease yourself into it at your own pace and kind of be a little bit ambitious and challenge yourself and stay positive but also balance it with all right I feel pain is it good pain is it bad pain that's something that people who don't experience a lot of injuries probably don't get the difference between good pain and bad pain but there is such a thing (laughs) um it's, it's all about balance and, and not coming back too quickly, and the confidence just comes with, with experience. Austin Pitts would like to know, there have been a lot of good conversations in the quid community recently regarding how we discuss female and gender nonconforming players. For listeners, you can go listen to our last two podcasts with Mark McAllister and Rachel Heald to learn more. How have those conversations impacted your thought process, and what do you think the impact will be on your coaching slash leadership techniques? I think from a philosophical perspective, not much is going to change with that. The biggest impact is probably going to be more forced conversation. I think there, I listened to Rachel's most recently, I think that came out most recently, and she had a a lot of very good points just about how some people will be less likely to like be comfortable sharing their opinions, be uh, forceful with their voice. Um, I think she specifically talked about it as, you know, a woman trying to like pave her way as a coach. And I think more can and should be done. I, I, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the conversations that we have, uh, you know, there's forced conversation that I'll facilitate. I think I can do a better job facilitating to put, to, to make that conversation less male dominant. So, um, there are naturally some people who very much just talk a lot. They're confident in their own voice. Well, forcing people 
I don't know if forcing is the right word, making people who aren't as confident in their own voice feeling more empowered in those situations. From a, like, X's and O's, what's best to do in a particular situation, I don't think much is going to change. Um, I, everything, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what more, more to say about that. I guess it's just more so just listening and, and trying to hear more. All right, we have a whole host of questions left. A lot of people added a lot of fluffy questions. So we're going to try and do this lightning round style to see if you could just crank these out. You're trying to see if I can shut up, Matt? (laughs) No, I'm saying that people don't want to listen to us answer questions for two hours. All right, all right. We'll see how fast I can go. All right, Christian Barnes would like to know, what's the secret to becoming best friends with Nathan? I don't have any best friends. Brutal. Jeff would like to know, what was your most beautiful dream? I feel like half of these have to be intensity jokes. Jeff asks everybody, or Jeff, as he's leaving, this is not intensity specific. Whenever he's leaving an engagement or a, like a party or whatever, he said, tells everyone, have beautiful dreams. Um, and I always <laughs> say, Jeff, shut up. I hope you have terrible dreams tonight. Next question. <laughs> Brutal. Man. <laughs> Luke Lips would like to know, what's it like to be considered a beast by old people? He's saying that because I commented, there is a, on a Snapchat, I was working out the other day, we're doing hill runs, and some old man walks up to me who's doing the hill runs with me, and he just goes, you're a beast. (laughs) And and then I ran like two more times and vomited and left, and he was still going. So uh, I think uh, I'm not a beast, so I I don't know how to answer that one. (laughs) Okay. Christian Barnes would like to know, what's a pregame ritual you have? I don't really have any pregame rituals beyond making sure everybody else on the team has their head right. I think mentality is everything. We didn't talk at all about that in terms of coaching, but that's something that I've started doing more of recently where it's like winning mindset, like performance psychology. I'm getting into that a lot, reading books and, and listening to podcasts on that. So it's just how do we get everybody in the right mental state where it'll you know increase our probability of success. Allie Mitchell wants to know, define athlete. Uh, whenever Tad says athlete, that, that person's an athlete. No, I, I'll elaborate on that one a little bit. I think athlete is a lifestyle and not anything to do with who you are physically. It's who's willing to commit to being an athlete. Athlete is what you eat, what you drink, how much you're you're working out, what, what you're doing in the moments, every single moment of the day. It, if, if you're an athlete, you're living your life as an athlete. If you're not an athlete, maybe you are something else. You are, you know, a financial advisor or a software engineer, whatever. Uh, your athlete is, is much more than just like a word to describe someone. It's more of a, a, a persona and a lifestyle. It's a state of mind. Yeah, exactly. Ben Strauss wants to know, when you throw a quaffle, do you put spin on it? It, it should not be a knuckleball. Uh, the problem with knuckleballs is they will float and curve like a knuckleball in baseball, and it makes it unpredictable for the person catching the ball. Um, I also don't throw a quaffle. I push a quaffle. Um, we don't throw quaffles. Um, it should spin. It should spin like a four-seam fastball. Perfect. and uh, Spin like a basketball, but faster, where there's perfect rotation with backspin because then you reduce curve. Luke Lips wants to know, how do you feel about brownies? This one time I ate a brownie. All right.
Matt Melton wants to know, what is your most ridiculous training story? Training story. Um, training story. I don't know if I have one that comes to mind. Just, oh, I do have a good one. Um, summer after my sophomore year in college, I... It was after, we talked about this earlier, after we got embarrassed by Blue Mountain and I watched all kinds of film, I identified particular weak spots in my game. Um, I got tackled, like, every time I drove that year. And I said, I'm just never going to get tackled again. I don't want to ever get tackled again. This is crap. I suck. Uh, and so what I did is I didn't have that much opportunity to go outside and do stuff. And it's something I've done ever since, and I still do it in, like, my apartment. But I had, like, a tiny little one-bed – it was a dorm, like, the smallest dorms on Marquette's campus, and I shared it with a roommate. And when he was gone, I would um, do specific footwork on juke moves, and I would, like, videotape myself, and I'd watch the movement itself and – do it from like front view so that you can see it as if you're a defender. And like, if I'm juking one way, I want to understand if, if I want to defend that direction and then I would go the other way. And I just like watched all kinds of Barry, Barry Sanders was the, the big one. So I just did that for like a whole summer. I just watched Barry Sanders highlight videos and replicated them. And I think it helped. I think so, too, because to this day, I can't think of a single time where you have not juked me out any time I've defended you. Uh, I don't know. It's it's funny because I am not quick. I, it's just all footwork. So for anybody out there who is frustrated about getting tackled, just, like, work on your, your footwork. It's a series of series of steps can make you seem as, which you're, as, as if you're going one direction, and then you can be balanced in a direction in which you can explode the other direction. Ex bounce in a way in which you can explode the other direction. Trevor Halverson, how the hell do you end up with my keys at Summer Fantasy 2017? I don't remember Summer Fantasy 2017. All right, fair enough. Trevor, why are you even asking that? I think no, it's I'm pretty just... sure I was obliterated the entire time. Okay. Trevor, you should keep track of your keys better anyways, so, so people don't end up with them when they're obliterated. Luke Yeager wants to know, what has been your favorite trip to the hospital for Quidditch? Uh, it was specifically the one this summer in the after the Super Series in Indianapolis with Toronto and Minneapolis. I had rhabdomyolysis, which um, essentially means your, your, uh, your muscles are shutting down, they're eating themselves, and then it goes into your bloodstream, and then it, uh, uh, you get kidney and liver damage. And so... I was in the ER for like four hours. Luke was at my side. Jess Anger was at my side. It was such a fun time. I physically could not move without cramping. Like we're talking if I bend my index finger, my whole hand would cramp and then my arm would cramp and then my bicep would cramp and it just disaster. Physically could not move without cramping and I was just exhausted and in excruciating pain. And... They just kept saying the funniest things and just imagine trying to laugh without moving. <laughs> it was it was a disaster and a fun time at the same time. I think only you could describe a four-hour trip in the ER where you're cramping continuously as a good time. I loved it. I loved every second of it. It was a good memory. 
pretty sure we got Taco Bell afterwards because that was the only place that was open in the city of Indianapolis at like two in the morning when I got out of the ER. Uh, continuing on the uh, injury train here, Aaron Moreno, will you stop playing when one of your arms fully separates from your torso, or will it take two? I think I'm going to answer this quickly. I will never stop playing due to an injury, but I just want to take a second and say I think my injuries are so overblown. I just play so much that it happens. You do seem pretty injury prone. It's a reputation that I've built, but I, w- I, I would say for the fraction of like time spent injured versus time spent played, I'm doing pretty well relative to a lot of people, especially considering the number, like the fraction of like the hits that I take on the field and things like that. I just like am always in like the worst situations. Uh, Scott would like to know cheese curds, like them or leave them? Oh, uh, I don't eat cheese curds anymore. I try and I tried to cut out like a lot of grease from my diet. Chris Lecomte, best Midwestern state to drive through. All of them. I love corn. I see why you and Allie get along. Luke Yeager, who are your role models as a coach as and as an ath-leet? Is this a tad thing? Athlete? I don't know if he knows how to spell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's correct, but... It's There's just hyphenated. I don't know. My role models as a coach would probably be, so Phil Jackson, Zen Master Phil. I'm a big fan of him, uh, understanding the psychological like effects of everything you're doing uh, and the effect they can have on players. Like He had uh, Michael Jordan practicing mindfulness and meditating before games, and, and Michael has, I don't know if they, I've never watched The Last Dance. I, I don't know if Michael refers to it at all, but it was, it's certainly something that, he's credited with his ability to like perform well in clutch moments is you can do stuff with your brain differently when you have more control over your emotions and can harness them. So Phil Jackson, big one. Also Kirk Ferentz and Hayden Fry, head football coaches, University of Iowa, who their whole mantra. So Iowa football has the highest percentage for, for the last 20 years has the highest percentage in all of football of any player who is a senior, senior starter, they almost all, like 95%, go on to play or, or sign an NFL contract, whether that's undrafted free agent or not, which is surprising because Iowa is not that good at football. They just churn through these two-star prospects and and do great things with them. It's They're not, not picking great players. They're picking the great players that nobody else saw and – putting them in like the right culture, the right environment for them to learn and grow and be great and like learn how to play as a part of a team. That That's something that I've learned a ton from. Uh, just I've, I've read a lot of their books and whatnot. And the last one would be Tom Thibodeau, Chicago Bulls. Also, uh, just the guy's a grinder. Luke Eager wants to know, what's the best looking Quidditch uniform you've ever played in? <laughs> uh, I don't really... No, I don't really like any of the uniforms that I've played in that much. Is that an answer? Ooh, you hear that, Ali Marcus? He doesn't like those intensity uniforms, the old ones nor the new ones. <laughs> I, I'm happy we, we didn't have to, like, prop Ali up or throw Ali under the bus on, on this one. <laughs> we can, you can include that in the recording. I love Ali. Uh, <laughs> 
every time yeah. I talk about her or with her, it just turns into like heated arguments, like rooted in love. I don't know if you saw the intensity. Uh, they they post posted something recently. Uh, it was hilarious. Luke Yeager said something along the lines of, um, "I love watching Diggy and Allie argue because it's like mom and dad arguing." And you know that they're not, or it, it's really like frustrating, but you know that they're not going to get a divorce. <laughs> it's, it was like really dark, but was, at the end of it, it was just like, well, I know that they love each other and it'll all be okay though. <laughs> I very much relate because a lot of my conversations with Allie are arguments about nothing. And our final horrendous question from Hannah Miller, how deep can you dig, man? I don't know. The first thing I'll have to determine is, can you dig it? I can dig it. You can dig it. We can dig it. I dig it. Dig Doug. (laughs) That was awful. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone, for writing into the mailbag. If you would like your question read on the podcast, please comment on the post that I put up every week in the USQ Great Lakes region page on Facebook asking for mailbag questions. I usually post with the guests of the week and which topics we're talking about, and we always appreciate the engagement that you give, so thank you very much. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some off-topic conversation. We are back, Matt and Nathan here, and we're going to take this one home. Diggy, how have you been surviving quarantine? How have I been surviving quarantine? I have been extremely lucky, and I'm grateful for that, that my life has actually not changed that much. I am currently sitting where I work. I, yeah, I haven't been disrupted that much. I'm not that much of a social person anyways. As much as I've rambled on this, you'll you'll have to cut out all the stuff that I ramble, but I don't like talking to people that much. So it's just kind of a nice to have some me time and, and read books and watch Netflix and work. And I've been doing a lot of watching film, which I mean, it's just stuff that I do regularly. So life hasn't changed too much. It's a little weird living in a one bedroom apartment by yourself. You don't talk to many people other than yourself, but nothing wrong with a little self chatter. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a similar situation working from home in a one bedroom apartment, you know, obviously not seeing friends or anything. What, uh, what type of shows are you watching? Oh, I try and watch two episodes a week or so on Netflix. I am slowly working my way through Ozark right now. Okay. I've heard of that. I don't think I know anything about it. What's it about? Financial planner who, uh, it's essentially breaking bad, but a financial planner. I see. Okay. Very on brand for you. Yes. For financial planning, not meth listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any other any other shows? Or you mentioned some books. Are you reading anything good? Um, I, I post every book I read to my Instagram. Don't follow my Instagram. It's so boring. Uh, I'm currently reading Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist Daniel Kahneman. He essentially goes into the the human brain and and how it functions not necessarily from a biology standpoint but actually from a thought standpoint so that's really interesting you understand like human bias and how that plays into all the decisions we make i just finished simon sinek's uh i don't remember which one it was i think it was find your why 
which is just understanding why you do what you do and letting that lead you on your path. Before that, I read uh, Jim... What, oh my goodness. You're going to have to cut this. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Jim Calhoun? Is that his name? Yeah, okay. So before that, I read Jim Calhoun's book on leadership principles for business and coaching, which is very interesting. It's a book that Luke Yeager gave me. I think his dad gave him just on, if you don't know who Jim Calhoun is, he coaches, he used to coach UConn basketball to a lot of success in the early 2000s. And it's just his principles for, for how he went about doing things. So a lot of the reading that I'm doing, it's not fiction or anything like that. It is very directly correlated with the things that I'm most passionate about. It's personal finance, it's Quidditch, like coaching, how to be your best, stuff like that. I also listen to a ton of podcasts. We mentioned that earlier, but yeah, I listen to podcasts at two to three times speed. I probably listen to, because of that, about four hours of podcasts a day, uh, usually as I'm working out. So I try and do like a one to two hour workout every day and I'm just listening to the podcast the whole time. So it's just, how do I absorb as much information as possible in a short period of time? What are you listening to on podcasts? Give me your, your top few. Top few? Uh, there are so many that I listen to on a daily basis. Pick some interesting ones. Maybe ones that people haven't heard of that maybe you think they should listen to. Against the Rules by Michael Lewis. He's the guy who did Moneyball and The Big Short. His podcast, uh, first season was on referees in American life. The second one's on coaches in American life. Animal Spirits, it's uh, one for financial advising. 30 for 30 is interesting ESPN stories. Uh, HBR Ideacast, so Harvard Business Review. Some in NPR ones, Hidden Brain, How I Built This. Uh, NPR Politics, Planet Money. TED Radio Hour, Science Rules by uh, Bill Nye. Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. What else is there? Whoop. Whoop podcast is a good one. If you don't have a Whoop, get one. I can get you a referral code. It's uh, essentially a performance tracker, so it keeps track of all of your um, biomet or I don't know bio data, whatever. So it it's like an Apple Watch. I describe it as very similar to an Apple Watch, but I think it does more and it, it's more user friendly and tracks it tracks things a little bit better. So you so know. you're talking like biometric data, like pulse ox and blood pressure and all that stuff. No. It's, it's for fitness. It is, so I know my heart rate, my heart rate variability, it, it tracks it every second of every day as you sleep. So I understand that last night I got six hours and 35 minutes of sleep. I needed nine hours and 30 minutes. Um, I know exactly how minutes of, how many minutes of REM sleep. It gives you recommendations for how to get the best sleep, things like that recovery. So you get a recovery score every day. That's based on your heart rate variability, resting heart rate and hours of sleep you got the night before. And then you have a recommended day strain. So how hard you should work out that day. So that's based on kind of your heart rate and the, the amount that you're doing throughout the day. So it's really interesting. I got into that kind of level of detail with my fitness because obviously I'm very data oriented in my mindset. I just love data and numbers. And from a fitness standpoint, I want to make sure I never get rhabdo again, but I'm maximizing my potential to be better, to do better. So rhabdo was a result of overworking my body, pushing it too hard and my body shut down. So this is a way it gives, it tells you, okay, you've been working out too hard. You should rest now. 
today you should only do this much. So it's been it's been really interesting. And their podcast just goes into detail on a lot of the a lot of the interesting stuff that you can you can learn uh, as a result of owning a Whoop. But it's also a big commitment, so <laughs> it's a lot of money. That yeah, that does sound like a ton. Yeah, it's a lot. It's like a monthly subscription and everything. So do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to leave for the Quidditch community? Get good, be better. Wow. Is that not <laughs> as deep as you thought? No, no, I I you know what? I don't know what I was expecting, but it probably should have been that. I I mean that like somewhat sarcastically in that that's a thing that people say sarcastically. As in, oh, you made a mistake. Get good. Be better. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's something people say. It's like yeah. a Luke. That's like a Luke Lips thing. Shout out to Luke Lips, homeboy. He, uh, and I, he, people, I think in Quidditch could be more ambitious with their own growth and do more and be more in charge of what they want to accomplish. Um, just, you have an idea, go do it, go pursue it, go talk to people who've done it before. I think that's. That's one of the beautiful things about Quidditch. The world's your oyster. We haven't really paved the path yet. You can do what you want with it. All right. Excellent wise words to give. Thank you. Where can the fine people find you on social media? Oh, God. Uh, Facebook, my name. Instagram, I mentioned. Uh, I don't know what the thing is. You probably don't want to follow me. That's it. I'm not really a social media person. I only have Facebook just so I can coordinate Quidditch stuff and and share stupid stupid uh, things that I'm reading. And then Instagram is just to post about the books that I'm reading and the nature that I see on, on my workouts. And now we will end, as we have the past few weeks, with a hot take. Hot take is that your beard is amazing <laughs> that's that is a l- lukewarm take at best i'm sorry i'm gonna need something else ah <laughs> uh, okay like, do we need I'm, re- I'm not trying to toot my own horn i do think i have a decent beard but like it's not most people enough. most people don't tell me it looks bad okay so that's not okay. really a hot take all right my hot take would be that i would this is gonna come across as not humble at all But people who've talked to me about it agree. Every person I've talked to about it agrees. And it's not from a leadership standpoint. It's from a facilitation of discussion and compromise standpoint. I think I would make a darn good president of the United States. (laughs) That that is not where I thought this was going at all. (laughs) Where did you think it was going? I don't know, but not there. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of people about it, uh, where I think I would be a very good politician. My, so I think from my leadership standpoint, it all starts with listening and empathy. And I think that's something that can get you votes in terms of just actually listening to what the people actually want and caring to hear what they have to say. And as a result of that, my, I also am in, uniquely in this position where I have all of these very, um, I know some people who are extremely liberal and I know some people who are extremely conservative and my viewpoints, because I try and lead with a lot of empathy is I understand everybody's argument, every argument on every issue. I've talked through a 
ridiculous, detailed conversation about why they feel the way that they feel and can find a way to understand it. And my viewpoints are from a place in which both sides could understand at least where I'm coming from rather than like saying this is what needs to happen and then rally behind it and everyone else hates you. I think that's what both sides do right now. So that's my po- po- political take for you. So I would make a darn good president of the United States. All right, hot take. Vote Digman 2048. 2032. 2030. Oh, okay. Wow. I was giving you some lead up time to like. That's when know, I'm. I'll be 35 run. in 2032. Oh, so you're going to run right at 35. You're, <laughs> I'm not actually going to run, probably. Okay. I mean, are <laughs> I, you I planning like any sort of like governorship, senatorial duties, anything like that? Nobody got time for that. <laughs> well, I just want to be president, man. No, I don't. Actually, I think. Uh, I, I would hate to be president, to be clear. I think it's a horrible job, miserable job, thankless job, in which you kind of ruin your life as a result of it. But I think that from a compromise standpoint could potentially get a couple things done, which nobody seems to get anything done anymore. So, All right, 2032, vote Digman. Well, Nathan, thank you very much for joining me for this episode of Homes at Home. Really appreciated having you on. I really appreciated joining. I hope I said a couple nuggets of things that people thought were satisfactory. I think you did. And if you didn't, I'm sure someone will let us know in the comments. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, This has been Homes at Home, and we will see you next time. And with our final question, Hannah Miller would like to know, horrendously, how dig can you... Wow. I'm going to start that again. (laughs) I did it. I was reading it earlier and I screwed it up too.